Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to NHS England's Director of Healthcare Inequalities, Professor Bolo Owalabi, who's also a GP in the Midlands. During this conversation, Bola talks about how she became interested in health inequalities and what her role in NHS England involves. We also discuss NHS England's core 20 plus 5 approach to tackling health inequalities, and Bola explains how this provides a framework for primary care networks to focus their efforts when it comes to improving population health, and why she believes this could ultimately make a big difference to patients and communities. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast now by Professor Bola Owalabi. Bola has a particular interest in tackling health inequalities through integrated care, system transformation and the use of data to provide insights on local populations. During her career, she's held a number of leadership roles at a local and national level. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I quite like talking to particularly people who've ended up in leadership roles. When I get them on the podcast, I quite like to ask them why they actually became a GP in the first place. So why did you decide to become a GP? Many years ago, I was training to be a psychiatrist um, and I thoroughly enjoyed um, the work that I was doing. But I realized that I have a personality trait that needs to see outcomes quickly because I felt as a GP, I would be able to intervene in people's lives and be able to see the impact within a shorter time frame. And I think there was a second element of, I do like an element of intrigue, that sort of detective part of general practice where people present with their puzzle and it's your job to make sense of it. So yeah, I think it's those two things really that led me to a career in general practice, which I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. How did you become interested in health inequalities and when that did that become a real special interest of yours? There certainly wasn't a light bulb moment. What I can say, though, when I reflect on my career now, I can see that health inequalities was actually a common thread. So, for example, I've always practiced in the ex-mining villages of Derbyshire, which many people will understand to be places that experience quite significant deprivation. When I worked as a system lead for frailty and end-of-life care, again, I found myself drawn to people who were particularly disadvantaged. And then when I was commissioning lead for maternity, children and young people, I was drawn to teenage mothers and their predicament and also to people with learning disability in particular. And then when I worked as a deputy medical director in a large community provider trust, again, I found that my draw was, you know, people experiencing frailty and a lot of my energies went in that direction. Then I was appointed as national specialty advisor to NHS England for older people and integrated care. And once again, my energies went in the direction of people living with multiple long-term conditions and how the circumstances of their lives were impacting on them. So you could almost go through all the major roles that I've uh, worked in 
like a culmination of a lifetime of working in health inequalities, if you like. What does your current role in NHS England, what does that involve and why were you interested in taking on that role? My role in NHS England sits in the national team. So for people who may be less familiar with the way um, our structures are organised, so you have the national NHS England, we have seven regions, we have 42 integrated care systems, we have hundreds of GP practices, and hundreds of provider organizations like hospitals, community trusts, and so on. So you can see how potentially quite distant from the front line my role is um, sitting nationally. But actually, we set the direction for the country in terms of what needs to happen in relation to tackling health inequality. So we set a clear vision and a clear direction We make funding available through different mechanisms to make sure that that vision is realized. We make tools and resources available in form of dashboards, e-learning modules, and lots of other things to enable people to take the agenda forward. And a final element of our work is we hold ourselves and others to account um, to make sure that actually we are delivering on the vision and the objectives that we've set ourselves. I saw you speak at a recent conference and one of the things I was quite struck by that you've got a vision that you would like people to sort of understand about how to tackle health inequalities and what it all means. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about that and what it covers and where it came from. Sure. So when I started in this role, I spent the first several months just having lots and lots of conversations with individuals, uh, with teams, with organizations around the country, asking them to reflect with me the fact that health inequalities are not new, of course. You know, the pandemic didn't cause health inequalities, it just exacerbated them. Wanting to understand from them, what can we gather around? What is it that we can all sign up to? And I spent five months having those conversations. And actually, the vision statement that I'm going to share with you now, I think it's powerful because it's carrying the voices of many people. Our vision is exceptional quality healthcare for all by ensuring equitable access, excellent experience, and optimal outcomes people do need to be able to get across the threshold. You know, the NHS being free at the point of need doesn't mean that there aren't other challenges that mean people may not be able to access our services quite as we would hope. And of course, when you suffer disadvantage, the quality of your experience becomes incredibly important because it will affect your outcomes. It will affect your future health-seeking behavior. And I've often talked about, look, if you're somebody experiencing homelessness, you need to summon enormous courage to come to the surgery. And you see, that's where the experience then matters. 
And of course, it's the combination of access and experience that ultimately should yield the optimal outcomes that we're all striving to achieve for our patients. One of the things that I'm quite interested in um, is obviously things like the social determinants of health, which Michael Marmot's done so much work around. They have a massive impact on health inequalities. And these are obviously really big, big issues, you know, to do with government policy that's often outside of the control of health, things like, you know, housing, local government policy. They're often things that GPs feel they might not have any control over and they can make healthcare inequalities seem like they're quite intractable problems to solve or too big a problems. You do believe that healthcare professionals can make a difference. And I was wondering if you could explain why you do. You're right that, you know, the social determinants of health are by far underway the biggest drivers of health inequalities, way more than healthcare inequalities. Um, And yes, the things you've outlined in terms of housing, education, household income, employment, um, access to opportunities. The reason I believe that we as GPs and healthcare professionals more broadly can have an impact, even in the space of the social determinants, is because there are a number of things we can do. First of all, in that patient interaction, just being cognizant of the impact of such things on people and inquiring into it. You know, prescription charges is a a really good example. Before we put somebody on multiple antihypertensives, have we stopped to check whether they could afford the first one we prescribed? And we could be the one to signpost them to a prescription exemption scheme. We can influence policy. Many of us now are in primary care networks. Those primary care networks are part of the integrated care system. Therefore, we can use our voices in the PCN to advocate for our patients and influence policy in that way. And also within the integrated care system, we now have the other parts of our communities like local authorities, like voluntary sector partners, like health and well-being boards. So we can use the opportunity of the ICS to speak into the space of social determinants, how housing could be driving people to have recurrent exacerbations of COPD, for example. And it doesn't matter how many antibiotics and rescue steroids and A&E attendances. If the housing situation is not fixed, A, it's a terrible life for the individual and it's a massive cost to the system. So I think you can begin to see how Our patient-to-patient interaction, there is enormous opportunity there. Our policy influence, our advocacy, our signposting, you know, these are things that are within our purview, even if we can't, as you say, make those big structural changes in that space. Our individual and collective effort in the ways that I've just been describing can be incrementally powerful and impactful, actually. Um, Those are things I think we can do. And also, I've talked about the fact that many of us work in GP surgeries 
or in hospitals or other healthcare settings. And these places are anchor institutions. They're anchor institutions in the communities where we operate. Look, when everybody else has gone, the GP surgery is probably the last one standing. And so the way we choose to use our premises, I know that um, Dr. Fazana Hussein in Newham in London demonstrated this so wonderfully um, over Christmas, opening the surgery doors, you know, to people to come and keep warm um, and offering soup and bread rolls, you know, the way they chose to use the surgery itself, you know, as a, dare I say, a place of sanctuary in the community. Um, as anchor institutions, we can use our presence in that way to directly affect people's lives in, in those sorts of real ways, I would say. You've spoken about this before. I was wondering if you can explain a bit about the the kind of economic argument for why we should tackle health inequalities. Yeah, I think quite often the conversation around health inequalities tends to be grounded within a, a moral or ethical um, imperative, which of course are very important. But I think we need to understand very clearly that there is a solid business case for tackling health inequalities. When you consider the fact that the productivity loss we experience as a country, whether through the loss of tax revenue or higher welfare bills, higher healthcare expenditure, and how those productivity losses, including early exit from the workforce. When you consider that those things are being driven by health inequalities in the sense that people from the most deprived communities and some of our ethnic minority communities develop long-term conditions earlier, those long-term conditions accumulate faster and they live with them for longer. So you can see how people therefore exit the workforce sooner. So we lose, we lose tax revenue. We lose the community capital that they bring by being active members of their community. We need to support them with welfare payouts for much longer. And, you know, the um, Institute for Health Equity, um, Sir Michael Marmot's Institute, have done some of the calculations that, you know, in terms of the additional healthcare expenditure, it's in the order of about five billion. And when you think about tax revenue losses, then that's around about 21 billion pounds. Um, and the other stark reality is that people from the most deprived communities, those experiencing health inequalities, even though they have a shorter life expectancy, the, the life expectancy gap is 10 years between a woman from the most deprived areas and the least, and the healthy life expectancy gap is 19.6 years. Bear that in mind. But even in those shorter lives, People command a higher healthcare expenditure as a result of recurrent emergency admissions, high intensity usage of A&E, 
difficulty discharging people from hospital because of difficult social circumstances, higher attendance rates at GP practices, higher GP urgent visit requirements. You can begin to mount up these costs and it's not very hard to see the economic case you know, for tackling health inequalities. I will signpost our listeners to the British Red Cross report titled Nowhere Next to Turn. And that report in November 2021 showed that less than 1% of the population accounts for the usage of a third of our urgent and emergency care pathways. That's stark. And they concluded health inequalities is the driver. So to my mind, if we don't take out the fuel of health inequalities, we will always be fighting the fires of NHS pressures. One of the big things that you've been working on at NHS England, what I mentioned at the start, the core 20 plus five approach. Could you explain a bit about what that actually is and what it means for frontline healthcare professionals like GPs who might be listening? So core 20 plus five came from a series of conversations that I alluded to um, in my opening remarks. Um, The conversations I had with people where some of the things they said is, Historically, we've tried to fix health inequalities in uh, what somebody described as boiling the ocean way. And they said, look, maybe we would get further faster if we can at least focus on what is within our immediate control, which is, you know, health care inequalities. And so that led to us looking at the data. So we looked at the Commonwealth Global Burden of Disease Survey. We looked at Public Health England's um, segment tool and the slope index of health inequalities. And all that showed us that there is a social gradient to health inequalities and that there are particular conditions that are driving most of the premature mortality and the mortality disparities that we see. And the social gradient led us to see that that bottom 20% of the population, the 20% most deprived communities by the index of multiple deprivation, they're the core 20. But there are communities that may not even show up in the data like people experiencing homelessness, like, you know, people sleeping rough, like those in the asylum system or refugees. And so we concluded we needed a plus so that they're not lost. So we're asking each integrated care system to identify their core 20 plus population and then drive improvement in the five clinical areas of early cancer diagnosis, cardiovascular disease prevention, chronic respiratory disease, annual physical health checks for people with um, serious mental illness, and continuity of maternity carer, particularly for most deprived 
population, women and ethnic minority women. So you can see how that conditions framing gives us a way in as healthcare professionals to really make a tangible difference. So now I can see that I may not be able to fix housing. I may not be able to fix employment, but I can make sure that the core 20 plus population in my PCN get the annual physical health checks if they have serious mental illness or learning disability. I can ramp up COVID, flu, and pneumonia vaccination uptake for that core 20 plus population group if they have chronic respiratory disease, particularly COPD. I can focus on early cancer diagnosis, helping them to access screening, supporting them by making sure I listen carefully to their presentation and refer them in a timely way on the two-week wait pathway if that's the right thing. So it certainly turns the complexity of health inequalities into a doable space that I as a GP feel I can have a personal and professional contribution to make individually as part of my PCN and as part of the integrated care system. So that's what Core 20 Plus 5 is. And when we talked um, to people and when we reflected, we realized that actually smoking is a common denominator across the five, you know. Um, and so we updated it to include smoking cessation um, as, as that common thread. And we also then worked with um, our children and young people's team in NHS England. And in November 2022, we launched Core 20 Plus 5 for children and young people. So it's the same Core 20 Plus population, but the clinical conditions are different because we are always, always guided by the data. So when we looked at the data, the five clinical conditions of focus in children are asthma, particularly improving the preventer inhaler prescribing, epilepsy, making sure they have access to specialist epilepsy nurses, especially when they have learning disability and or autism as well. The third beta around diabetes, because we saw stark inequalities in uptake of things like fast glucose monitoring and other devices in diabetes on an ethnicity basis, quite stark inequalities there. Oral health, you know, at the age of five, children in the gypsy Roma communities have a 60%, 60% prevalence of dental decay at five, compared to 13% in the most affluent parts of the country. So you can see where we got the data from and why we're focusing on those areas. And again, as a result of the pandemic's impact and the worsening of children and young people's mental health, we actually have mental health as one of the five. There's some core 20 plus five ambassadors out there as well, aren't they, trying to spread the word about this approach? I mean, how many of them have you got and what are they up to? So uh, we've currently got nearly 140 of them. They are clinicians, many of them GPs, and 
you know, medics and other clinicians from different specialties. Uh, many of them are professionals from other backgrounds like social care. But the common denominator is they need to be people who are actually working in their own community and driving forward work on reducing health inequalities. So, for example, from London, we have, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me mentioning him, Riyad Karim, um, who does enormous amounts of work on vaccination uptake, um, particularly in our ethnic minority communities. Um, we have Liam Loftus. He's a GP registrar. And again, Liam has done enormous amounts of work, um, again, in tackling health inequalities in his own local area and nationally. So they come on for a year on a voluntary basis. And, you know, as you said, what they're there for is to really amplify the message, um, to be an expert resource for people who are trying to do the same but don't know where to start or how to go about it. We support them with a lot of professional development opportunities. So I really would encourage anyone who is listening to think about applying next year. How confident are you this, that this approach is going to work or make a difference? I am confident in the fact that we co-produced this with so many, many people. And whilst it's not perfect, I'm always very humble in saying core 20 plus five is not the thing that is going to fix all of health inequalities. But what it does is it gives us focus. And that focus gives us an opportunity to gain traction and be able to have measurable impact. And that co-production that focus, traction, impact approach is where I derive my confidence. And also the enormous energy. People suddenly see that health inequalities are not the too complex, too complicated, too difficult to do. Suddenly, this framing gives people a way in to be able to get involved and make their own contribution. You've mentioned a few times, obviously, through this conversation, integrated care systems. So we've got them. We've had them since July last year. But one of, one of the four key things they were sort of set up to do was to tackle health inequalities. So what sorts of things should integrated care boards be doing now around health inequalities? And how would that sort of impact on frontline clinicians? So we've set out um, five strategic priorities for them to take forward. And the first one is to restore our NHS services inclusively. So as we tackle the elective waiting list backlog, how do we do so in a way that is inclusive? That is something practical. So in Coventry and Warwickshire, um, NHS Trust. They look at their elective waiting list, they look at the clinical prioritization, but they also consider people's socioeconomic circumstances. Another practical example from the front line is at University Hospitals of Leicester, where they looked at the DNA rates 
for their respiratory outpatients. And they discovered that it's in the main, the core 20 plus population that are being affected, either because of zero hour contracts or carer responsibilities or English not being a first language. And they put the necessary investment in place and the DNA rates crashed by 50%. And the second priority is to mitigate against digital exclusion. So each ICB can work with general practice and other providers to make sure that as we roll out our digital consultation channels, as we roll out digital clinical pathways, that we do so in a way that offers multiple channels to people so that we don't exacerbate digital exclusion. Priority three is to make sure that data sets are timely and complete, especially ethnicity coding. As we learned during the pandemic, the more complete those data sets were, the more we were able to see which communities were not keeping pace in terms of vaccination uptake. And it's all about data. Data drives energy. It drives resource allocation. The fourth priority is to accelerate on preventative programs like Core 20 plus 5 for adults and for children and young people. And the final one is to strengthen leadership and accountability. So every ICB should have a named executive senior responsible officer for health inequalities. Every NHS organization in each ICB should also have the same. Each PCN should have a named health inequalities lead. So those are the five strategic priorities that our ICBs can immediately take forward working with frontline healthcare professionals. PCNs are obviously going to be really crucial about how practices are going to be working to tackle health inequalities. How important are PCNs to this and and where should they be starting on what they're doing? I think PCNs are absolutely crucial because they are the closest to the community. And in the end, it's all about place. And if we take that as a given, that place is perhaps the most powerful lever for tackling health inequalities. Well, PCNs are the closest to place. And for that reason, I I see their roles as um, central to success. Where should they be starting? So we've got the Tackling Neighbourhood Inequalities Enhanced Service. I think by looking at that carefully and checking to what extent are we driving forward the specific interventions? That's a great place to start. We can each PCN sit down and say, what are we doing about Core 20 plus 5 in this PCN? What are we doing about Core 20 plus 5 for children and young people in this PCN? You know, it won't fix everything, but if we could do those three things, I think we would have made a significant leap forward. Um, You know, how about each PCN making sure that everyone is using the tools that we've developed? For example, we've built 
health inequalities education modules with the RCGP, they're live. Also with Health Education England, they are live. How about every PCN commits to all of us undertaking those modules, talking about them in our appraisals as part of our revalidation, as part of our own capability building and awareness building, using tools like the Priority Wards dashboard that tells us, compares us PCN to PCN, how many people in our PCN are having emergency admissions for conditions that actually lend themselves to primary care and community care, which we call ambulatory care sensitive conditions. That dashboard has been built. We can all commit to interrogating it routinely and using it to drive improvement in each of our PCNs. I think we would have done a lot if we can do all that. Obviously, GPs are really busy at the minute and they often feel like they can't take on board anything more. What would you say to them about health inequalities and why it's important that they engage with it? GPs are the most powerful advocates for their patients. They are the consummate system leaders. They carry enormous trust from their communities. And on that basis, I think we have incredible influence in this space. Let us see health inequalities, not as something else to do. It's the day job. Every patient who sits in front of us, we can ask the right questions. We can go to the PCN, we can go to the ICB, we can bang the drum with the local authority. I suspect every GP in the land, social value is why we're here. So let's tap into that value set that drove us to be GPs in the first place. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Bola for taking the time to talk with me. I'm back next week for our regular news review, so please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting primary care, as well as accessing a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 